As you know, a very important part of these panels is the representation of our own AA speakers. And these people are not idly chosen. Uh, they're selected from various parts of the country uh, because other people have heard them and have shared their stories. I would like to say that I've heard our next speaker. I haven't. I met her just a few minutes before uh, this program started. At that time, when she looked out and saw how many of us there were, she expressed some apprehension. I hope by now that most of that has vanished. You are a warm uh, and generous audience. And I'd like to give you now Barbara G. from Minnesota. Hi. My name is Barbara, and I am today a happy, grateful, recovering alcoholic. Uh, thank you. When I, the only thing, the only people I have ever talked to, maybe were about 50 people, and so when I looked out here and saw a couple thousand of you, I'm just going to make believe there's no more than 50 out there. But today I am a happy, grateful, recovering alcoholic, and I will never again be able to use alcohol as long as I live. Not because I know. But not because I can't, but I no longer find it necessary to do so, to be the person God intended me to be. When Phil Hansen, the director of our unit in Minneapolis, my boss, talks about a room full of miracles, I am without doubt just that. I had a tough time in this program. For me, it was not easy. Through God, AA, and all you people, I have found a way to live comfortably without the use of alcohol or any other mood-altering drug. For this, I am eternally grateful. I think it is only fair to tell you that this is my first attempt at speaking anywhere, other than explaining halfway houses to the patients in the treatment unit at Northwestern in Minneapolis. I have never before tried to put my story together, so it's a long involvement for 30 minutes because there are a lot of things I would have liked to have been able to tell you. However, when Marvess asked me to speak, he said you wanted to hear from someone who had made it in a hospital setting that had really had a hard time. Here I qualify as Northwestern treatment program for my alcoholism was my seventh program plus about 30 other sessions before and in between treatments either drying out or related to my drinking. I started my six-year alcoholism treatment career in September 1965. Four of the seven treatments that I went to were within the last four years. I want to tell you a little bit about what I was like. I had a happy, good childhood. I had good, caring, but strict parents. One sister, eight years younger than myself. I had above average grades in school, and I grew up disliking drinking and avoided the people and places it was used. Neither my husband and I drank or smoked until after we were married. But married life found us drifting into a new drinking society, and because I wanted to be like other people, I spent some horrible times actually learning to drink. <laughs> my, my heavy drinking 
began when my 13 years of marriage ended. I found myself rejected, resentful, hurting, and afraid to cope with life alone. No one chooses to be an alcoholic, just like no one chooses to be a diabetic, to be white, or to be black. There was nothing I could have done to avoid it except to have never drank. When we discover how one drink, one pill, will change our feelings, first we use, then we misuse, and then become addicted. My marriage problems introduced me to psychiatrists and psychiatric wards. I had found a place to run. Psychiatrists couldn't help me, not at this time. I wasn't honest with them. I didn't know how to be. I thought they would fix me. I hadn't become aware of my feelings. I couldn't tell anyone how I felt, not from the guts, you know, from my stomach. I always told them from my head what I thought they wanted me to hear. Alcohol had me completely confused. I had as much of an emotional problem as an alcohol problem, which is a part of alcoholism. I feel we get sicker in different degrees in different areas. Of course, my drinking increased. As my drinking increased, my nerves got worse. I, I knew my drinking had something to do with my nerves, but I couldn't stop. Someone suggested AE. I tried it, but I didn't, I didn't want to be an alcoholic. They were drunks, and I surely wasn't that. After 17 years at Unaroyal and Eau Claire as a bookkeeper, I took a leave of absence from my job at their request. <laughs> I settled down and I tried to drink myself well. I broke an arm, which took about nine months to heal. During this time, I began my afternoon and morning drinking. My pattern was drink, eat, and sleep. I became a fat, bloated, 160-pound, 40-year-old divorcee and a nervous wreck. I asked my psychiatrist, when I get up in the morning, I'm so nervous and shaky. But when I take a drink, it helps. But it wears off by noon, and I need another. What's wrong? Is my, is my drinking making me nervous, or are my nerves making me drink? He walked away. Remember, this was in 1965, and things have changed since then. Education has brought new knowledge to our doctors also. So in September of 1965, he sent me to our county hospital to work off my weight instead of giving me diet pills. I was terribly resentful at this time because the county hospital was the last place anybody wanted to be. But it turned out I was very grateful that he showed me how to work it off and didn't get me started on the diet pills back then. But this was the beginning of my drinking career. I stayed in the county hospital for six weeks. And this, remember, was 10 years ago. My treatment for alcoholism there consisted of one AE meeting a week conducted by an AE member from our Eau Claire group. I really went to the meetings to smoke and to talk about how terrible it was there. In 1966, six months later, I was committed to Mendota State Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. They had a program for men just started then, but there wasn't hardly anything for women. We were only allowed to hear a lecture a day. To me, this was more of a punishment than it was help. 
and it's the same time that we were experimenting with LSD. And three months later, I was back at the county hospital. This time I stayed four months because I did lose some weight working it off. In 1968, I went to my actually first treatment unit in Racine, Wisconsin. And at that time, we had one-to-one counseling and lectures, but no groups. And we were put on tranquilizers. And I was so far out that I couldn't read the notes. I was required to write. Remember, you know, this is a while back. The only thing I can really say I remember there is my counselor there told me, remember, it takes as long as it takes. And somehow this stayed with me and gave me, you know, the will to fight. I left Racine with a nice bottle of pills. You know, little was known at this time about the transference of alcohols and pills. In 1969, I went back to Luther Hospital. And it was during this time that A.S. and Hank G. made a 100-mile 12-step call and brought me to St. Paul. And this was in about 1970. And this lasted a short time. They put me in St. Croix at Prescott, Wisconsin. We had some one-to-one counseling, and good lectures, and, and an introduction to my first group therapy. I had had some bad experiences there, so they told me to go home. I drank immediately, of course. Three days later, I went to Wynot at Warehouser, Wisconsin. I was there six weeks. From there, I finally did one thing they had been trying to tell me to do for a long time. I went to Minneapolis. I thought, I'll stay a week and I'll go home. This was a halfway house, wayside halfway house in Minneapolis for women. And I think I started to get a few things together there, although for me it wasn't enough at the time. But I drank the day I moved from Wayside and went back to Wynot. I had some more one-to-one counseling. We had three lectures a day then. And I had some good group therapy. Someone began to help me understand about my feelings, that I had feelings, and, and make me aware of them. Remember, at this time, during this period, treatment programs were improving. I was picking something up from the programs. My tolerance for alcohol was almost gone, and the time between drinks was shorter. The last time I drank, I went into a two-day complete functional blackout, and that's when I ended up in Northwestern Hospital. What happened at Northwestern Hospital treatment that hadn't happened to me before? I was ready. As we say in AA, I was physically, emotionally, and spiritually bankrupt. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I no longer got my highs or good feelings from drinking. I no longer threw up. I did most of that learning to drink. I was just sick all the time. I was afraid to take another drink, and I was afraid not to take it. I wanted to die, but I didn't want to die this way. Something did begin to happen. I had paid for almost all my previous treatments before. This time, my insurance company from Unaral, who was still carrying me, paid it. I have to have been the first person that went through a treatment program on the Unaroyal insurance policy. We didn't have, so when I got out, I didn't have the financial problems I usually had. It was the first time that I was close enough to go back to the treatment center. I could keep in touch and make new friends. Instead of leaving treatment, sure I had had it this time, 
I left Spirit. I got involved in AA. I, I went to everything I could. For the first time, I was willing to let go of everything and ready to make some changes. They told me all I had to do was give up my whole life. In order to start a new life, I had to give up the old one, which meant people, places, and things. I did just that. They told me I had become addicted to a way of life that would have killed me. Now I must become addicted to a new way of life. Turn on to sobriety. Phil says, let's try to get as well as we can before we die. Life is just a journey. The method of travel is my choice. Happiness to me is living as comfortably as I can. Our lives are geared towards comfort. Wearing comfortable clothes. Wearing comfortable shoes. When it's hot, we turn on the air conditioners. When it's cold, we turn on the heat. We must, they told me I must learn to be comfortable inside with my feelings. I believe that comfortable living is what we were all searching for through the wrong methods. In the second step, where we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable, I had to realize so did my emotions become unmanageable. And I found that I had a lot of emotions, a lot of fears and guilts and anxieties, hurts, lack of confidence and so forth, and they were painful. And I found a drug, ethyl alcohol, that whenever the pain got more than I could bear, I could cover with this, and I had no pain. And each time I went back to drinking, it was because I was hurting again, and I covered it up. So I had to start taking these, these emotions apart, my fears, finding out what I was afraid of, and what I felt guilty about. And I had to start doing something about this. I started working on my program for me. There is no right way to drink, and there is no wrong way to stay sober. Whatever works for one may not be right for another. I had to find my way. I had to learn how to be happy. I had to learn how to love and care and share. I had to learn not only who I was, but that I had to accept me. And this is another big thing in the serenity prayer. When I started my changes from after I had accepted, accepted myself, I started to make some progress. In order to feel good, I had to do things that made me feel good. I believe the recovery process consists of a long series of changes. We hear so much about attitudes, about changing attitudes. I was told that I had to change my behavior before my attitude would change, like I had to go to AA before I liked it, to give up drinking friends <clears throat> before I could find and like AA people. I was told I had to try something before I could say I can't. I can't means I won't. I was told I had to change the dependencies from the bottle to God that I had to learn to cope with my feelings. In turning my will and my life over to God, I had to turn my emotions over also, my fears and guilts. I had to change habits. I had to set up a new value system, to set up disciplines for myself. I had to put my priorities in order. I found there were also things 
that I couldn't change, like other people. I couldn't change them. I could only change how I reacted to them. To me, time is a key word in my program, and the process of recovery is like growing older, one day at a time. We don't notice ourselves getting old until we get a few years older and in some time in, and we look back. The same I feel about this is in, in gaining, in feeling better in the progress in AA. The most important one factor in my recovery has been in helping other people. Three months after I left treatment, Phil Hansen called me back and asked me to start a halfway house for women. I said, no, I'm, not, I'm a bookkeeper and I know nothing about it. Second, second with my past, I never could do it. He said, that's your qualifications. You should be able to identify with almost every girl who would come there. <clears throat> and he said, can't you see how God has, a plan, has had a plan for you all along? When he opens doors, go through. Wow, that was the first time anyone had ever considered my past anything good. How could I say no? Someone finally has some faith in me. Either that or maybe with only three months sobriety, I was too sick to say no. <laughs> so the 1st of October in 1972, I opened a halfway house for women called Crossroads Number 1. August 1st, 1973, I opened Crossroads Number 2 for men. And August 1st in 1974, I opened the apartment, a three-quarter house for women. This July 1st, I'm taking over as director of all three. We have a total of 36 beds, and as far as I know, we are the only ones using no for, that are not using any federal, state, county money, or grants. Phil said if only one person gets well, the house is worthwhile. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> But someone had faith in me. I got out of myself and into other people's lives. And my motivation was maybe I can help someone else not have to go through what I went through. My friend Bernice D. says she compares the 12 steps to the Ten Commandments. Jesus was a teacher, and he simply said, If you want to be happy, follow my program. It works. In order to feel right, we must do right. Those who make it are those who quit. In closing, I want to thank all of you out there for being. I, want to, <clears throat> I learned everything I know from you. My AP, AA people, the clergy, my counselors, professionals, non-professionals. I had many teachers. I thank God for all my experience experiences. I evidently needed them all. God dealt with me as he saw fit. I couldn't. God could, so I let him. All of us here today that are sober got our sobriety in different ways. We must allow each other the right to feel okay about the people, places, and things that help them. The past six weeks, I traveled from Minneapolis to California, New York, Arkansas, and now Denver. 
I found the EE meetings were conducted a little differently in places, but they all had the same basic big bug. But there were a room full of miracles wherever I went, so people all over are getting weller. We've come a long way since I first came to you in 1965. At the roundup in Palm Springs, a gal from Texas said, Remember the old-timer. If not for him, it never would have been. That's right. But for me, also, if it were not for the new, I would be dead. The way we got sober may change, but the way we stay sober will not. That's with AA, Alcoholic Anonymous. Keep it as was. Let this start begin with me. Four years ago, I couldn't talk in a group, and here I am talking to you all at an international convention. I tried. I thank God for what he has given me. I thank him for what he has taken from me. I thank God for what he's left me. God bless, and thank you for listening to me. with us and it was a very moving very warm sharing and we thank you so much also um, I'm sure those of us here would like to wish you the very best as you take over all the roles now in your, in your venture and I think that you too may have I had not realized and I apologize but Barbara and I met just briefly for a moment before this panel started uh, that she is a professional in the sense of running these free facilities now or about to and you may have some questions that you would like to ask her as well um, we have some time may I ask that you um, put your question so we all get a shot at this fairly briefly and ask uh, and identify which doctor or if it's Barbara uh, you would like to ask a question, or if, you, if uh, it's both doctors, or all three, uh, we'll go from there. Um, I'll start with this gentleman here, and we'll kind of work around. Yes, please. And you're going to have to talk up, I think, because I unfortunately have this thing, but you don't. Let me see what I got that question right. With all the five million pills on the market, how do we know that our own doctor isn't giving us garbage? Who wants to tackle that one? All right, Dr. Kim. Uh, that's a tough question to answer. Uh, it, it involves choosing a doctor wisely, and that is a very difficult task. However, most of you, I'm sure, have had a doctor or more in, uh, during your uh, days struggling with alcoholism. 
If you have found one who has helped you and with and in whom you have confidence, uh, you can work with them. And if you tell him, uh, and if you have a new doctor who doesn't know of your alcoholic past, tell him frankly about it and tell him that you don't want to get hooked again on another drug. Because alcohol is the worst drug of them all, but some of the newer ones are pretty bad too. And uh, lay your cards on the table. Tell him, please avoid any drug that may get you started uh, on an addictive, addictive path again. Thank you. Bradley, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll see. Well, uh, tell him you're an alcoholic and make sure that he uh, labels your prescription, too. Tell him you want the prescription with the name of the thing. And you got lots of friends to ask. Um. <laughs> All right, we'll take one from the other side. This gentleman over here, please. Is he, while he is a patient in the hospital, uh, and the best you can do when he now well then tell him about geritol and the percentage of alcohol in geritol, um, and then it's up to the patient to decide. Oh, I have no idea. Possibly folic acid. It sounds like he could be anemic. There's a lot of things he would need. All of Dr. Williams' uh, uh, pills are available in, in three square meals a day. Um, 
And um, they, uh, they, uh, <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll take a lady. government who I maligned have now made Valium, Librium, and Equinol much more difficult for that doctor to uh, prescribe, um, uh, then you're going to have to put your program against his relationship with the physician, and that's all, uh, that's all you can do. And uh, so you get very rabid, uh, and you turn against folic acid or whatever this other patient probably needed and should have had. Uh, um, You'll notice I didn't in include coffee in my list today. Uh, very little doubt in my mind that lithium uh, is less dangerous to use than coffee. Um, um, so you you must approach, and in, in, in my 25 years of working with physicians and AA, I expect AA to have a lot more common sense and a lot more equanimity uh, and a lot more concern for this person than they than the physician. So just mount your battle and and um, uh, and something as uh, destructive as Valium and Librium, I would ask him to leave the doctor. Um, any physician today in the United States who orders Valium or Librium or Equinol for a alcoholic, uh, for anybody for that matter, outside of a hospital setting, now there are other reasons for using Valium and that, uh, outside of hospital, is uh, practicing poor medicine. It kind of makes cooperation with the medical a little difficult. Yeah. Um, but, but, but not for long. They're being, they're being told in great big uh, letters now that these are very serious uh, 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 drugs. Uh, one of the, the, we use it in psychiatry as an aid. Um, to psychotherapy. We, uh, psychiatrists aren't classically in favor of medication. They take more pride in their great skills. Um, uh, but they use Valium and uh, Librium now. They use Meprobanate before. Uh, and there's no... lithium uh, is less dangerous to use than coffee. Um, um, so you, you must approach, and in, in my 25 years of working with physicians and AA, I expect AA to have a lot more common sense and a lot more equanimity uh, and a lot more concern for this person than the, than the physician. So just mount your battle and... and um, uh, and something as uh, destructive as Valium and Librium, I would ask him to leave the doctor. Um, any physician today in the United States who orders Valium or Librium or Equinol for a 
alcoholic, you know, for anybody, for that matter, outside of a hospital setting. Now, there are other reasons for using Valium and that. Uh, outside of hospital setting is uh, practicing poor medicine. It's kind of makes cooperation with the medical a little difficult. Yeah. Um, but, but, but not for long. They're, they're, being, they're being told in great big uh, letters now that these are very serious uh, 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 drugs. Uh, one of the, the we use it in psychiatry as an aid um, to psychotherapy. We psychiatrists aren't classically in favor of medication. They take more pride in their great skills. Um, uh, but they use Valium and uh, Librium now. They use Meprobanate before, uh, and there's no question in my mind. We just have to come up with the scientific. Uh, explanation of how this would work that anybody using Valium or um, Librium uh, precludes any possibility of them learning anything new. And there's no question in my mind. <laughs> there was drawing an alcoholic with Valium. And in a hospital setting, the, the average person who is admitted to a hospital nowadays, it's hard to get in. Uh, as I said, the Valium is probably life-saving in some cases. Uh, we don't expect them to learn anything the first three or four days. Uh, still there's enough alcohol in the system, they're not to learn anything. Um, uh, and it, it, it precludes uh, all, any good counselor knows he's not getting anywhere with a patient fogged down uh, with alcohol, with Valium. Um, you can get more and more vicious in your attack now on Valium, Librium, and, and Equinol. Uh, but I said you've got, to pr you've got to approach this with some caution. You know, you realize that AA is against uh, everything. You're against ORNAs, you're against high blood pressure pills, you're against vitamins, you're against everything. Um, I would predict that there's about 30% of the patients we admit to our hospital should probably be discharged on Thorazine and lithium. Now, those are serious, powerful drugs. They do not interfere with your ability to think. If they do, take them at night. You don't have to take them like you do Valium. The trouble with the damn things is that the patients won't keep using them. And there's no recorded case of an alcoholic abusing lithium or Thorazine. And yet, as a profession, we refuse to use it. Just like we used amphetamine, we're entirely responsible for the amphetamine ep epidemic, and there are very valid, valid tests to show that amphetamine under no circumstances uh, reduces the appetite. Uh, and yet, billions of pills we sold to that. Yes, Barbara, something you'd like to say. I would just like to say that I think, you know, as an alcoholic, I think, like I said in my talk, that it's not the use of things, but we misuse. And I think there are many drugs that are needed, you know, for different things. I think that, that it's time that we, too, take the responsibility for the drugs that we put in our mouth. I think we keep blaming doctors and people, you know, for what it is, but I think once, this is what education is about. Once we've been through treatment programs or, and that we have learned what it can do, I think we need to take this responsibility ourselves. <laughs>
Barbara Nathan for the peculiar type of a chronic uh, alcoholic who's emotionally unstable or psychologically sick or long range. I've had more more dramatic success um, getting Valium or er, lithium carbonate um, to friends of mine who are in the, in the recovered category, uh, arrested category of alcoholism. Yeah, we find it a very exciting drug. Not like you're reading that it's a new miracle or answer, uh, but uh, we've said that for years that alcoholics are moody. Uh, uh, compulsive, perfectionistic people, and uh, there ain't uh, really such a thing as what a, an alcoholic, but a personality. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a very exciting drug and almost a miracle. In uh, 24 hours, 12 hours, person will feel like an altogether different person. Now you're taking a salt there, and the salt is is a dangerous um, thing. Sodium chloride, sodium salt, is dangerous. Uh, incidentally, this is the uh, is the powerfulness of alcohol is that it acts like a salt, and uh, alcohol breaks down in, in, into the um, carboxyl group, which is a big thing, and, and so it acts exactly like a salt. And this is why you get a glow in ten minutes. That's for real, and that's because it's a salt. After you use it for a prolonged time, uh, the uh, toxic effects of alcohol is that it's also a, fa a fat solvent or an aliphatic drug and that's a different thing then it gets into the cells and starts to change the structure so it has two actions acute so its immediate action is a salt reaction and the lithium is very much tied up with alcohol's uh, uh, capacity to act as a salt so we're very concerned about the Potassium, that's why a person is uh, delirious, and the magnesium that he mentioned, um, and lithium is in that field of, uh, uh, is also a salt. So it's a, it's a very effective drug. It's not a miracle. It is a miracle with some people. As far as we know, it's going to be fairly um, uh, non-toxic, but quite uh, contraindicated uh, in some people, and there's some indication that it's going to be very dangerous mixed with a few drugs. Any medicine we take nowadays, uh, the dicuminin that thins your blood, the, uh, uh, the birth pill, the, uh, the oral diabetic pills, uh, these are all dangerous drugs mixed with other drugs. So your doctor now has got to become a pharmacologist and you've got to have the backbone to tell this doctor, what am I taking this for? What are the odds? Why am I taking it? Can I get along without it? And... Um, it's, uh, it, it is the responsibility of the patient to say. Can you become addicted, addicted to this drug? Well, it's too early yet to say, but... We have uh, other other than alcoholism, uh, say, from a criminal type of, uh, of mind. Would this uh, have uh, uh, any effect uh, on elevating or other controls that he wouldn't have any control of his own self? I, I cut that out of my speech to get down to the 30 minutes. The, um, I, I personally am not a fan of the addictive personality. I don't think alcoholics are prone to be addicted to uh, any other chemical just because they're addicted to alcohol. Um, that's a complete myth as far as I'm concerned. Uh, 
and it's a comfortable myth if you're not willing to give up alcohol you you uh, just jump to something else um, now alcoholics who are not willing to face the facts of life and do something about it obviously are going to be uh, hooked on anything they take uh, even trouble or feeling sorry for themselves um, uh, and of course the best way of not doing anything of avoiding um, problems um, is not to worry, not to be anxious. And of course, by far the best non-worry drug is alcohol, and its closest competitor is Equinol and now Librium and Valium. I don't know why people use Librium, Valium, Equinol, still better uh, tranquilizer than uh, uh, Valium or uh, Librium. It's just not fashionable anymore. Uh, <laughs> you see, lithium does not alter your uh, your ability to think. Uh, Thorazine will um, in large doses, and so that we very quickly put the person we think has to be on Thorazine because their thinking just won't straighten out. I'm sure this is organic. Um, <coughs> uh, and we very quickly put them on a 1-3, so they take three at night, and you can be as dopey as you want as long as you're sleeping. Um, and the effect that we're looking for, if you think of a very specific metabolic effect, and these drugs are very chemically pure now, um, is what you want during the waking hours. Uh, uh, lithium looks like a very safe drug that way, addictive ways. Um, very dangerous drug, and the, but the do your doctor is well informed on that. We've been, see, it was a salt substitute in the 20s. And that's why it got this reputation for being dangerous. But people had it on the table and were whapping it on everything they ate. Uh, so they were eating a pail of it. They figured that, uh, you know, that, that cancer, that saccharin or whatever it was, that the good one, um, causes cancer. But then some wise guy figured out that the cause is you have to eat a pail of that stuff a day. And I, I figured out that's exactly what I was using a day. <laughs> Dr. Cam, you got comments. Uh, about lithium, uh, it was uh, in a VA hospital in Maine that uh, the first studies were done with lithium. Now, I do want to caution you about lithium a little. Don't expect your doctor to be current about it. It's still a very experimental use of the drug. It hasn't been used by many people. Uh, it it is, as Dr. Bradley said, a very dangerous drug. Uh, it has to be monitored in the blood to make sure that you haven't gotten excess because it is a, a killing drug in excess. And don't expect your doctor to know much about it. Uh, the very few doctors who do, it's still in the very experiment, early experimental stage. I don't know that it would be contraindicated unless you're taking a, a drug, a hypotensive drug that might interact with lithium. Oh, no, I don't think it'll be uh, contraindicated on the uh, basis of salt, no. Is there anybody who has a question that doesn't deal with uh, dr pharmacology or drugs at the moment? Um, We'll take that lady there.
Gentlemen, for the glasses by the door. Excuse me, saying, could you repeat that? Because the applause is going. I'm not sure. on that, if the doctors are willing, uh, that you talk to them after this session, is that agreeable? If you'd come up, sir, and, and chat with them, because, I, because yours is a personal problem. This gentleman here, please, the yellow shirt. Yes, my name is Brandon, I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to ask the doctors, um, just as a, a specific thing, when they were first involved with the AA program as a part of their treatment, perhaps. What was the presentation that uh, convinced you that uh, this program could be helpful to alcoholic patients? And I ask that for reasons because I come from a place where I think the mail must be a little slow because Talk. You can imagine Lynn and Pat and some of those clowns, they talk all night. Uh, 
and we listened all night. Uh, but they backed up their uh, things with a great deal of energy, a great deal of patience. Um, they blew their stack once in a while. Um, but uh, the only way you is do it by example. And your own sobriety is the uh, uh, single largest weapon you have. Uh, I don't know whether we were peculiarly blessed in Minnesota or not. Uh, uh, we always attributed the success in Minneapolis to the fact that the best-known drunk and the most frequently arrested uh, uh, skid row character in Minneapolis uh, became sober. Um, first uh, alcoholic I seriously worked with was a priest, and we had a new drug then, an anti spasmodic drug to get rid of tremor, something like Valium was supposed to now. So we ran an IV on him, Fred and I, and he was impressed with the dickens. This guy, uh, about four hours, drank tomato juice, and Fred informed me that this is a good sign when an alcoholic will take something by mouth. Um, and then Fred uh, was a good civil servant. He went on the weekend, on a weekend pass, and I was left with a priest. So he, um, he was fine. The drug, we did a miracle job on him. He was feeling fine. And then he told me that he was a priest and he had to run a mass the next thing. Well, who in the hell ever associated mass and church and religion with drinking? So I thought it was perfectly fine to let him go. And um, so he fled right back about Sunday, 4 o'clock, a little apprehensive about how physically well this guy was. And he wasn't there. And uh, he blew his stack because he found that I had given him permission to leave. And uh, he knew he was dealing with a real baby. I explained to him that it's perfectly all right, Fred. Don't worry. He's going to say a mass. And, uh, <laughs> so you have to be kind and uh, persistent. Um, I don't think it's worthwhile using clout. I think you got to learn to discipline yourself. Uh, a lot of you get out of hand in an institution. Um, uh, you, I say now, you got uh, the question of Valium Literum, just tell them what the hell, you ought to know better than that. Get some literature and show it to them, for one. There's another good trick. Uh, way back then, Fred had all the copies of the uh, uh, Quarterly Journal. You know, and I'm sure he was the only one in the state of Minnesota who had copies of the guy, uh, Quarterly Journal. So, um, um, keep trying. Um, I don't know if any other trick to you. As soon as you get a good one, um, then he'll he'll he is is your best uh, um, advocate uh, of the thing. We have time for just about two more questions. Uh, let's see what Charles. Question for Dr. Bradley. Instead of hitting the drug head 
Oh, I don't think so. I would suppose about 85% of psychiatrists still think that's the answer to treat the underlying psychosis or whatever the hell they got. And, um, uh, and you know, it's really, uh, the, uh, doctors are, in, in some states by law now, have to treat, uh, and they're doing with, with all their miracle drugs and routines. They bring people back from liver coma now, and they're absolutely shocked that, these, that you return to drinking. Um, no, you, you you still have the same problem as the fellow in the yellow shirt has, is, is uh, and I don't know. Uh, so most of the referrals today you're still getting uh, are really slough-offs, and you're getting them from psychiatrists because they uh, are treatment failures. Uh, I don't know when they're going to accept... Uh, um, so you're asking us to make a big decision, a big step, uh, you're trying to tell me that my 10 years of psychiatric training really um, doesn't apply to the 10 million people who have an alcohol problem and the 50 million people who are overweight and the 40 million people who smoke cigarettes and the um, 9, 5 billion Valium users. Uh, I don't think a single one of these people are going to solve their problem uh, by looking for some vague, abstract, psychological explanation. Uh, uh, you better attack what's bothering you now and do it the 12-step way. The lady there in the... The lady in the yellow uh, blouse, please. Uh, Dr. Bradley, could you comment, please, on the off-token uh, idea of taking off heavy sweets when you quit drinking? And sugar well, I don't know what's the most treacherous part of our diet. Uh, we don't really know the fats or the carbohydrates. Um, uh, it's about the best substitute I know. Um, it looks like we're going to have to give up this coffee business one of these days and uh, but uh, let's hope by that time the Sanka will be more palatable um, we now serve all through the uh, institution Sanka including the staff we got to drink the damn stuff too uh, so we have decaffeinated coffee in the in the um, treatment center and after three days now it'll be terrible going back but after three days it tastes just as bad as the old coffee used to taste um uh, yeah, that's a good stuff. So just be aware that you're um, uh, that you're functioning uh, out of control, uh, and uh, so when you have your hard candy and, and eat one every half hour, that's fine. But when you eat half a pound every half hour, then you say to yourself, and uh, you still are able to think. Uh, so you you work on this and uh, on yourself and. Um, uh, this is what we like to think, and we did innocently get involved with um, uh, Equinol, really, thinking this is a, certainly a lesser. But remember, there's the damn AAs in um, Minnesota that thought Secanol and Embutol were better than alcohol. They used to carry around their pockets all the time, uh, hand them up. They, uh, uh, so just count your blessings and say I'm hooked on something now that at least is not so seriously affecting my ability to think. And um, but my God, that's an awful routine I'm advocating. But I think that's where we're headed, really. Uh, there is a nutritionist who's working with our 
Oh, I don't know. These are real things. Fructose may cause cancer now, for all we know. Uh, I think I... <clears throat> time is... It's up. I'm sure that you join me in expressing thanks to Dr. Kayum, Dr. Bradley, and Barbara... For those of you who'd like to, would you join me in the Lord's Prayer, please? Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father. Our Father.